Actually, later in that song, Lennon mentions UFOs. But I think the thrust of the beginning of that song is closer to the spirit of this show. And before I get going, maybe I'm just, I'll am just i just say a little something to you public radio listeners out there. <laughs> uh, public radio listeners often are the first to rebel against anything that they feel sounds irrational. I, I would just say this about what we're going to be talking about for the next hour. You know, if you really sat down and made a list of all the anomalous things that have happened to you in your life, moments where you experienced a powerful sense of deja vu, moments where you experienced a coincidence that just seemed impossible, moments where, where what? Where you saw something that you couldn't reconcile with your, your ideas of reality, um, all of those kinds of things. You know, William James would call those weird facts. Um, I think all of us have some kind of portfolio of those, and we don't necessarily bring them to the front of our consciousness because, in fact, to deal with them, we had to park them somewhere. But they're there. Uh, I think most people, if you could get them to be honest and get them to do kind of an inventory, which is hard to do for the reason I just said, they would agree uh, or they would at least be forced to share uh, with you the fact that, yes, they've got a little list of those kinds of things. All right. So today on the show, uh, we have two guests. Um, the more that we worked on this, this is the third day of Astronauty Week. The more that we worked on this, the more we saw a lot of commonalities between these two guests. So we're going to start with Diana Walsh-Pasolka. She's been with us before, professor of religion at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington and the author of American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, and Technology, which is, I think, the book that brought her to us the first time. Her new book is Encounters, Experiences with Non-Human Intelligences. Later in the show, we're very excited to have Carlos Ayer, a professor of history and religious studies at Yale University. His new book is They Flew, A History of the Impossible. Uh, and this is very specifically focused on kind of uh, on a lot of the miraculous happenings that were taking place more or less on the bleeding edge of the Enlightenment. Um, so, uh, but let's begin with Diana. Uh, we're very excited to have you back, Diana Walsh-Pasulka. And we should also say, apropos of, um, of Astronauty Week, that just to honor us, I think astronomers have announced today they've discovered a six-pack of planets formed at least four billion years ago and remarkably unchanged since orbiting a nearby sun-like star. So, star. so it never, never stops. So, Diana Walsh-Pasulka, if I had to describe your new book to somebody, here's how I would describe it, and, and then you can tell me <laughs> that I'm right or wrong or elaborate one way or the other. Okay. I would say you're kind of running your thumb down the knife's edge between experience, non-human uh, 
encounters or experiences with possible extraterrestrial life forms or other, and revelation um, uh, or or epiphany. Uh, there's the, the the two have a lot in common, and the more that I get into your book, the more I keep thinking. Well, they have a lot in common in some cases. What we think of as an epiphany and what we think of as an inexplicable encounter with a possible alien life form might be very, very similar. But but you, you should say more. Okay, sure. First thing I'm going to say is I am a public radio listener. So <laughs> <laughs> You know who Just I mean, you know. though. You know who I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Um, okay. I, I think you mean my mother, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so... You so you suggested that it's a combination of revelation and um, again, what's the next word you use well, to describe a, a, it? Epiphany, and not a combination, oh, but the, okay. the, there's just kind of a thin line between oh, what we think oh, of as a religious yeah. epiphany and what mm-hmm. we think of as a maybe a uh, an encounter with a non-human intelligence. Sure. Okay. Yes. So um, I would describe it that way, definitely, because in the first book, American Cosmic, um, which by the way was. Uh, is published by Oxford. So, you know, it is an academic book, mm-hmm. uh, but it became popular because I guess the timing was pretty amazing. Um, so, so I, I mean, because we're talking about UFOs in Congress at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that, that in the first book, what I proposed to do was to document what I describe as a new form of religion, um, not just UFO religion, because we do have UFO religions um, but but a new form of religiosity, spirituality, uh, the focus of which is the UFO. And so the second book, Encounters, is then a deep dive into the people who have these experiences and, the, you know, how they came to these experiences and what they're experiencing. And um, to go back also to your the NASA announcement that you made earlier, and the first two chapters are focused on uh, a person who actually trains astronauts and pilots, and she's um she's a space psychologist. So most people don't know that we do have psychologists who focus on uh, the people who go into these extreme environments and uh, prepare them for the, these extreme environments. And so uh, it focuses on uh, Dr. Ea Whiteley, who's at University of College London. So you know, and she also talks about the experiences of astronauts and pilots who see. Uh, what we now call UAP, um, unidentified anomalous phenomena, and so yes, I do think that that this book is um, is it you know it, it fits that it would be revelation as there you know that's what testimonies are say in the New Testament or you know the Hebrew Bible uh, we we identify that as as revelation, but in that time period that was basically those were just testimonies so yeah the book is a bit basically is a book of testimonies of people who have these experiences you know and before we even get to uh, uaps or anything like that one point you make early on in the book is that astronauts by the way tomorrow's show is like all astronauts uh, against my better judgment but um <laughs> uh, that astronauts have what's sometimes called the overview effect when they get out there uh, in space they look at space they look at earth and and whether it's Edgar Mitchell who who really ultimately f- f- said the only real correlate he could find would was more in religions like Hinduism and Buddhism uh, to the kind of experiences that he was having uh, Rusty Schweigert and the non-astronaut but astronaut uh, William Shatner who 
went up recently with Bezos uh, and came back and just described weeping, you know, at this different perspective that he had. And, and different perspective just seems almost like an understatement, right? This You get out there and, and there is a whole kind of reordering of your sense of your relationship to the universe. I mean, I, I'm saying you, but I'm, I'm meaning astronauts, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, that definitely happened. And, you know, the training of astronauts has changed, of course, because now we have simulations. So astronauts now, so what the early astronauts experienced was, was something like this overview effect, but even something deeper than that, that Will, uh, William Shatner actually, aka Captain Kirk, experienced. And, you know, for him, it was uh, it was really disorienting and it verged on horrific, right? So he came back to Earth, and he had to gather himself before he could actually give any public statements about it. Uh, but he did. He he wept. And so there's there are extreme. Ex- well, there are experiences that are very extreme uh, when people do leave Earth and venture into space. And the best of those is called the overview effect, which is captured by that famous photograph, um, Earthrise, right from um, you know the Earth rising um, taken from space. And a lot of people think that this experience now can be communicated to people like me who have never been in space, like ordinary people. Um, but a lot of the astronauts say that that, that 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 can't happen. But what's happening is the people who actually train the astronauts are now taking that information that they got and they're now putting it into virtual reality so that the astronauts can be prepared when they get there for these extreme experiences. You know, one of the things that I thought uh, reading the previous book and reading this book, I'm, I will now make a prediction. I will now demonstrate my uh, precognition abilities. One of your next three books will be about near-death experiences um, because there just are a lot of commonalities there, too, including, and I'll have you elaborate on this, that people who have had near-death experiences, they come back and they are often profoundly changed, so changed that they're almost dysfunctional within the normal rubric uh, of society. Sometimes they're just so altruistic that they've got to help everybody uh, and they've got to love everybody just as much as they love their own wife and kids. Um, and, and that's something that also seems to happen to contactees, right? Yes, definitely. And by the way, I have studied near-death experiences. So um, Leslie Kane has written about them. Mm. And uh, I've, I think I would have written about them by now. But I, I did do an, uh, a look at what is called other world journeys in the medieval time period. It was, you know, when people left their body or they died and came back, which was rarer then because they didn't have the technology, the medical technologies that we have today. Um, but yeah, so what we see is a reorientation of value systems. So people actually, um, when they have these experiences, they do get completely shifted or changed and and definitely become, um, I guess, altruistic would be a good word to describe it. Um, one of the other things that, well, actually, let's do it this way. Um, one of the points that you make is that when people have an encounter, um, Usually, either we never hear about it because there's stigma attached to it, or it's mediated, as you would say, through you know government agencies or journalists like me. In other words, we put the uh, the story into some kind of context that works for us, um, and that one of your goals and one of the goals of some of the other uh, researchers you admire, like Jacques, Jacques Vallée, is to go directly to the witnesses, see if you can get testimony or get understand them in a way that's unsullied and uncompromised by outside agencies. Um, could you say a little bit more about that and, and, and how that worked out for you? 
Yeah, sure. So um, what I found was that when I started to talk to people who were having experiences that they associated with UFOs or UAPs, um, this seemed a lot like what I had done when I was looking at miraculous events in the Catholic tradition. Um, and so what I found was that, you know, let's take Teresa of Avila. She's a nun, a Spanish nun uh, from the 1500s. And uh, her experiences with a quote unquote angel are very well represented. So you can, you know, Google search her and, and see um, her, ex you know, experiences represented. What I found was that, you know, she actually wrote about her own experiences in her diary. And what she said about her experiences looked very different than how they were represented in artwork. And so what we see is we see this kind of what we call processes of redaction, uh, which are changes and edits, right? And so I found that to be the case in especially redaction is a big word in communities of, of ufology because the CIA redacts a lot of documents that have to do with, with UFOs. So I found the similarity and I thought it was ironic, but actually very appropriate. So, so yes, these experiences, unless you're talking to that people who actually had the experiences, they often get changed and they also get changed through popular culture. So, you know, there are, you know, what a lot of people actually know about UFOs, they they've seen through like documentaries and things like that. But this is all entertainment. You know, a lot of um, what we see about UFOs is entertainment media. So we're getting a lot of this information that's been filtered through, you know, what's going to sell, you know, what people what's going to bring eyes to, you know, these, uh, you know, posts, say, on social media. But rarely do we get the people who are just talking about what they experienced. And so that's what I hope to do in Encounters, was just give you this, this experience, obviously mediated through me, but as much as possible, you know, letting these people talk for themselves. Right. Uh, first of all, when uh, Carlos joins us, uh, he's going to use the term bracketing, which is, I think, related to uh, your ideas about redacting. Uh, but we have to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to have more of Diana Walsh-Basulka, uh, and then we'll have uh, Carlos Air join her, the two of them, they're going to have the most wonderful time together. She's, you're already talking about stuff that Carlos is interested in. All right, here we go. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
That song, by the way, could, that could be the theme song for Carlos Ayer's book, They Flew. But we're coming to that uh, in the next segment. Right now, we're with Diana Pasolka. Uh, encounters, experiences with non-human intelligences, explorations with UFOs, dreams, angels, AI, and other dimensions. So, Diana, to that point, you know, often when uh, UFO encounters, alien encounters are reported back through the press, even by people who really want to grant the premise of them or at least get us interested in the premise of them, they're often just the people who have had these encounters, they're almost invariably described as he's an engineer and he didn't believe in UFOs and he doesn't believe in anything else and he's really, really rational, but he saw this thing. And and that's not entirely what you discovered talking to these people. You talk about them being kind of initiated into a new life, one, as you say, characterized by vivid and lucid dreams, altered states of reality, the presence of UFOs and supernatural beings like angels, as well as a uh, presence, of net, uh, presence of a network of information that many experiences believe they can access, that, you know, a lot of your people, like there's a guy named Jose, there's a guy named Len, they're interested in a lot of things besides just whether somebody came here from another galaxy. Yes, they are. Absolutely. So <laughs> that's the thing is that when I begin to study this, which was in 2012, um, I was surprised by a lot of what I found. And the one thing I found was that when people would have these experiences, the experiences were accompanied by all these contexts, right? So there's their life contexts, and they would see things other than just what we would term UFOs. And the UFOs, by the way, wouldn't look like what we, you know, stereotypically think they look like. And they would have these experiences. And so when I wrote the other book, um, you know, we were we decided at my editor and I to call it okay. Um, experiences with non-human intelligence. Um, but then he said, you know, Diane, I think we have to be really explicit that all these things occur. And I said, I think that's a really long title. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, but he said, but it's accurate. And I said, okay, might as well just make it accurate. So yeah, so these people, um, they, they will see a UFO and then a lot of other things will happen to them. And personally, as a person who does research in this, I thought I should include everything else in the context of the experiences, because these are not just usually one-off events. These are events that occur within a life where people are having these changes and they're adapting to these changes. So um, Jung, as you know, was interested in UFOs, and sometimes he seemed to take them pretty seriously as real possibilities, and sometimes he seemed to kind of more incorporate them to in, into his thinking about the rest of life. But I was thinking a lot about Jung reading your book, and specifically, like, I'll give you a specific example. And this is sort of something, I just me just pushing in a little bit at one of these stories. So there's a, a scientist in your book. He's the, you call him the gray man because he doesn't want anybody to know who he is. Um, and he has one of the first things you describe. He has this experience um, where he is awakened from sleep and he's kind of encountering this being who is initially scary and then the opposite of that. Um, and he has a lot of the symbology, this being, that we would associate with the Archangel Michael. But the gray man has no familiarity with the Archangel Michael. There's no reason why he would conjure up a vision of that because it's not anywhere in his experience. Although, 
and correct me, I might, I might not even have this right, but my, the way that I think about Jung, Jung would say, well, no, he doesn't need to. That's an archetype. You know, we carry around these archetypes, part of our collective subconscious. Uh, so you can have a dream about a manticore, even if you don't know what a manticore is. And you can have a dream about the archangel Michael because he's, just, he's there, whether you ever saw him in a painting or read a book about him or not. What's your response to that? Oh, yes, I definitely saw, well, there were a lot of things I saw in the symbolism of what he was describing to me. And of course, a Jungian archetype is, is one way we could describe it. Um, and I also found that the, the being that this, you know, kind of light being with a sword actually is pre-Christian as well. So, you know, um, it's kind of this irony um, or coincidence. But last week, uh, I was at the Soul Conference, which was the inaugural conference at Stanford for the Soul Foundation, which which uh, is you know a group of scientists who study UFOs and UAPs, and they named their organization after Sol Invictus, which is the sun god of Roman mythology, pre-Christian. And so, um, and the iconography is exactly like Saint Michael. You know, you have this beautiful being that looks like a soldier has. Uh, you know, it, it's fighting what looks like a dragon or a demon, and, you know, it has a sword. So I guess I would respond to you. I mean, of course, those, you know, I, I did an, an analysis of Carl Jung's ideas of UFOs in American Cosmic. I didn't actually just, I didn't really want to um, reduce these to our, our normal constructs, because I thought that it would be best just to describe them. Because, you know, I mean, it would just be another way to say we don't really know what an archetype is either. <laughs> so you see what I'm saying? So I want to I want to kind of push that. And I I did know that. I mean, it's also very uh, there's some very Freudian overtones to his vision of, of St. Michael as well. And I knew people would pick that up, uh, but I didn't actually want to talk about that in my book um, for the reasons that it's just another theory about what it could be. So, you know, we, we're spending this entire week uh, talking about really re things related to this theme. And one of the um, uh, stories or one of the reports that you deal with in this book uh, is one that really intrigued me just because of the way that it was processed by the kind of the first and second and third responders to it. And, and it's the Brookport, uh, uh, Brockport, New York uh, um, UFO in, in 1967. Um, I'll, I'll let you tell a little bit of that story. But uh, I know one of the things you'll want to talk about is that some versions of the story seem to have more credibility than others uh, just because of the way they were narrated. But I'm not doing as good a job as you will. Have anyway, just sort of give people the bare bones of the story first. Yes, sure. So um, one of the people I feature in the book is Len, and he is um, he was a, a teenager, a young teenager during uh, the 60s, the 1960s. And he experienced um, a UFO flap, which is a series of UFOs that are seen over a fairly small geographical area in upstate New York. And this was in Brockport. And what fascinated me about first Len was really fascinating in and of himself, because he also had some very, one would call it uh, archetypal visions. Um, but this experience in particular was interesting because it was well-documented at the time and uh, studied by NICAP, which is uh, a, a UFO research group that existed back then. And it was seen by over 30 people, so many credible witnesses. And I'll talk about the credible witness idea in a minute. 
But um, what was fascinating was that the first person to see the Brockport UFO was a security guard named uh, Zipkin. I can't I can't remember his first name. Um, so he sees this, but he sees it as a and by the way, this is going to be a pattern in almost all UFO reports. You're going to have people see the same thing, but see different things. OK, so I want to stress that for your uh, for your listeners. OK, so he sees a craft pulled down into the parking lot where he's the night watchman. And then he sees these little people get out of the craft, little people like three feet tall and run around and then get back into the craft and leave. And he's the first one to make the report. And he makes the report. And of course, everybody at the police station is laughing at him, right? Because it sounds so ridiculous. So his report is made. But then after that, reports come in, but they don't see a craft and they, they don't see little men or little people. What they do see is the kind of Steven Spielberg uh, close encounters of the third kind, beautiful looking craft. And that comes in and everybody treats those reports as actually credible, but they discount the first report, which is Zipkin's report. And Len, the person I feature in the book, he's a teenager and he's having a sleepover at his friend's house in their backyard. And he and his friends um, see this, this, uh, the same kind of UFO, but they don't see it as a craft. It's this really amazing, beautiful light um, show that that you know goes slowly over them. And so most of the people see that. But the people who do the the research of this, the um, the nightcap uh, researchers, they don't they they throw out Zipkin's report because it's ridiculous. But they keep all the other reports instead. So I thought I I needed to include Zipkin's report because. Seriously, when you do look at these things, a, a lot of people will see things and then some people will see the same thing, but see it differently. So I needed to include that because, you know, it is data. Right. And so, by the way, Sydney, Sydney Zipkin is his name. That's um, right. Thank you. Thank so, you. Um, so this is why I'm going to circle back to NDEs. One of the arguments that's kind of leveled against the validity of near-death experiences is that uh, Hindus tend to have Hindu uh, NDEs and Christians tend to have Christian NDEs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so how can how can that be when, when God standardized all these things? Although I think I think what you think about Brockport is what I think could be possible about NDEs, too. I mean, back to William James. He would say pure experience is something that none of us is capable of processing. We don't have the humans don't have that capacity. We use constructs that allow us to just, you know, to, to get sort of look through two long straws into pure experience and see whatever it is that we can see. Um, and, and so, yeah, we're going to experience things kind of the way we're we're wired in the way that we're taught. I assume that's how you would interpret the kind of differentiated versions of the same UFO. Absolutely. So William James, of course, was, um, you know, Kantian. He had some Kantian overtones. So Immanuel Kant, uh, one of the most amazing philosophers of Western history, uh, proposes that we have faculties and that we can't know, you know, we're, we're human beings in space time. And actually this is being, you know, Kant is being validated through basically quantum physics today that suggests that, you know, who is the person who just said this? I um, that, that space-time is a headset that we wear, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that would explain why, you know, when we're, when we're looking at something that's perhaps, you know, something maybe extraterrestrial, but maybe from, you know, some other dimension or something, that we are looking at something that we all see 
in various ways. So, of course, that would include near-death experiences, too, and the variation in near-death experiences. So let me go back to Len, um, the, one of the guys in the Brockport story, kind of the protagonist in your Brockport story. He says to you, over the years, I've experienced a well-documented UFO sighting, an intense inner vision of a Catholic priest on the night he died, a poltergeist with other witnesses, a full chakra kundalini electric shock wave while chanting, a deep recognition of past life, various super vivid dreams, particularly concerning death, uh, and exposure to a luminous, numinous white light that led to a sincere spiritual investigation and ultimate personal transformation. So we're back to that earlier point, which is, there are a lot of people who don't just see a UFO. <laughs> you know, there's right. they get a lot of other stuff going on. Now, right. a certain percentage of people hearing that are going to say, oh, so he's a cuckoo bird. Um, and, and so how, how do you answer that? I mean, for some people, the UFO sighting would maybe raise their eyebrows. But if you add all the other stuff, they're going to say, oh, well, he's totally unhinged. Um, what's the response to that? Okay, first let me go back, and this will actually lead into Carlos's, uh, hopefully, uh, connections here, um, because I do, I'm trained in Catholic history. So uh, one of the documents that I looked at at the Vatican Archive when I was there, and that I actually have um, and have uh, had translated, is the, the records of uh, Saint Joseph of Copertino. Okay, don't do to, too much. Yeah, don't do too too much. Saint Joseph to Carlos gets here because that's that's one of the two that we're really going to do. Uh, oh yeah, no, I'll, I'll just do this one part of that document, which is that the first like thirty pages of it or so is basically they had the same problem back in that time period, which was when he flew. Nobody, you know, the, the Catholic Church didn't necessarily believe it. So what they did was they had to go out and they had to get what are called credible witnesses. And we still have that problem. So when people say about Len, well, you know, he's like you just suggested, you know, um, perhaps not rational. But that's actually just not true, because as I showed in American Cosmic, the people that I feature in the book, are not just credible witnesses, but they're they're incredibly successful, and many of them are at the absolute top of their academic game. Like um, you know, uh, Dr. E. O. Whitley, uh, Whiteley, uh, Dr. Gary Nolan, who's at Stanford. Um, you know, these are people who are beyond rational. They're actually innovative um, scientists. So there is this idea that we do establish credibility with a lot of the witnesses. And that was the problem with with uh, Sidney Zipkin was that, you know, they didn't I they didn't think that was credible. Um, he was a night watchman. That's somewhat credible. But he, he himself, you know, that that was a weird thing to report. But when you report something that looks kind of cool and possibly you know, other people saw it, then you're like, okay. And then when the people, they always say, okay, was this a school teacher who saw it? Was it a an a person who's a trained observer, like a police officer? So they're always suggesting, okay, these are credible witnesses. This person was an astronaut. They saw this, you know, they called it a UFO. Um, so they always, you know, they always suggest the credibility of the witness. So um, I also spend time talking about the credibility of of all of the people that I feature. Mm. So we're going to take a break here. Uh, Diana Walsh-Pasulka is going to come back, and Carlos Ayer is going to join us to talk about the flu, the, a history of the impossible.
stop. Stop. Seen stop. in Texas, stop. stop. The gray is blue, flying saucer, stop. we flowing. The highway that night, the orange beam coming down was right. Truck stop, stop. not a myth. Remember that light. The orange beam, not a myth. Remember that light. Observation, not a myth. Remember that light. You've been abducted by gas. When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. And our technical producer today is Kat Pastor, senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show and the inventor of Astronauti Week. Although, actually, I technically did coin the name. But the, the creator of Astronauti Week is Lily Tyson, and she's the producer of this particular episode. Uh, also, thanks to Mr. Carp. Mr. Carp is the reason that I even know about Carlos Ayer. Carlos Ayer is joining us. Uh, uh, Carlos Ayer is a professor of history and religious studies at Yale University, won the National Book Award in 2003 for his memoir, Waiting for the Snow in Havana. Uh, his new book is They Flew, A History of the Impossible, uh, and he joins us now. Carlos Ayer, welcome to our conversation. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me to join. So um, this is a, uh, um, first of all, a very beautiful book, and it's a very scholarly study of um, these miraculous things, these impossible things, particularly levitation and and bilocation, uh, kind of 18th, 17th centuries. Um, And I discovered that one of the things that inspired you, get ready, Kat, for C1, I discovered that one of the things that inspired you to write this book Oddly enough, was this. We should be dead, man. I know we was lucky. No, 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 no. That's luck. Yeah, maybe. This was divine intervention. You know what divine intervention is? I think so. That means that God came down from heaven and stopped the bullets? That's right. That's exactly what it means. God came down from heaven and stopped these mother bullets. I think it's time for us to leave, Jules. Don't do that. Don't blow it off. What just happened here was a miracle. Chill, Jules. It happens. Wrong. Wrong. This doesn't just happen. Do you want to continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with the cops? We should be dead, my friend. What happened here was a miracle, and I want you to acknowledge it. All right. It was a miracle. Can we go now? Now, this, of course, was not uh, two 17th century saints. Uh, these were no. uh, um, two gangsters in Pulp Fiction, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta. Yes. Uh, so tell us about the effect this had on you, Carlos. Oh, well, I had been uh, obsessed with uh, impossible miracles uh, before I, I watched this movie. But watching it made me realize that, you know, my God, you know, th- this is this is not some kind of arcane subject that no one might care about, but I, I realized uh, that this very, very intelligent, deep discussion between these two gangsters um, just showed that it, every uh, most people, I won't say everyone, but most people are fascinated by the possibility of the miraculous. And it kind of gave me an impetus. Uh, it gave me a push to actually start working very seriously on this project, which ended up being the book. 
Right. Um, so now we're going to talk about uh, St. Joseph of Cupertino, who Diana just brought up, uh, sometimes referred to as the Flying Friar. I, Carlos, I have to just observe that there's two Cupertinos, and the other one is the home of the Apple Campus, where, oh. you know, I think if you showed somebody even 100 years ago an iPhone, they would just go, okay, that's a miracle. That can't possibly exist. There you go. Um, there you so, go. And, and, and there's a connection because the stream after which Cupertino, California is named is the, the, the Spanish uh, named the place after St. Joseph of Cupertino. So, tell, so us, actually, tell us a little bit more about the Flying Friar. Flying Friar uh, was born in 1603, died in 1663. It's a 60-year span of life, during most of which he was repeatedly seen hovering and, and literally flying by hundreds, perhaps thousands of people uh, in Italy, um, and he even uh, rose above the, the head of Pope Urban VIII and Pope Urban, you know, back to the witness issue. Yet you want a credible witness? The Pope uh, said, reportedly said, if this man dies before I do, I will testify at his canonization inquest that he rose above my head. Uh, and he was seen by all sorts of nobles uh, titled nobles, very important people, uh, including the, the Spanish viceroy uh, in Italy. So the, the 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 cloud of witnesses, as the Catholic Church sometimes <laughs> likes to say, it's a cloud of witnesses, uh, appropriate for somebody who literally flew. The cloud of witnesses is huge in the case of Joseph of Cupertino, uh, and this is just one aspect of why I decided to focus on him. The other reason I decided Joseph Cupertino is, 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 is you know, anomalous, doesn't even cover it. <laughs> he, 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 he rose higher than anyone else, and he did so often outdoors. And in the 17th century, there was no way that anyone could fake this. Uh, the, and I should add that you know, much of my book is also devoted to people who were uh, unmasked as frauds, who mm. were actually faking these levitations and bilocations. The Catholic Church was very careful about documenting uh, the genuine ones and, and sifting through and, and tossing out the, the, the fake ones. But levitating outdoors in the 17th century, there's no way, there's no way you can rig up pulleys. Uh, and ropes, or or even uh, you know very thin cables, and the same goes for uh, churches with very high ceilings in which Joseph rose to the to the very top. So uh, how does one, how does anyone explain the the hundreds of testimonies? Right. So there there are going to be explanations. We should say more than seventy feats of levitation were reported at the inquest uh, of, of for uh, Joseph of Cupertino. Um, and, and one of the things that you say in your book is that, yes, a lot there's there's a tendency to treat something like that as some kind of invention. I think that's the word that you use. Right. Um, and I, that's also, I think, something you refer to as bracketing. Explain bracketing. Bracketing is the. Um, the stance taken by most reputable scholars in our day and age and dating back to the 19th century where these strange phenomena are, are, are not, the, not studied as miraculous, 
but rather are, are studied as something that has been witnessed and of, of which we have reports. So the only fact you can look at is the reports, the testimonies. You cannot look at the event itself and make any judgments about it, whether it actually happened or not. So what you're left with is is, is called in, in, in social scientific jargon is functionalism. You study the function of such things, what role these uh, events play in a culture and society, uh, either in small circles or larger. Uh, so you're only interested and you can only talk about what purpose do these things serve. Right. And so I'm going to bring Diana back in here. Um, Diana, this is very similar, I think, to the kind of mediation and reduction that you're talking about. There's also, though, just an ethos within academia that that's kind of what you should do. You, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't project any credibility uh, onto uh, impossible things. And maybe each of you, but let's start with you, Diana, could just how do you navigate that within the context uh, of a, a job in academia? Well, okay, so I think that, I mean, Carlos does an amazing and wonderful job of explaining what bracketing is. And it's always something that I do in every interview, as I say, in my field, we're not advocating belief, we're not advocating any particular religion. So in religious studies, this is what we do, we bracket. Um, what happened to me when I started to study UFOs was I had to come up with a different methodology because the impossible things that were being witnessed were also being being identified objectively on radar and also other equipment that we have, very sophisticated equipment that identifies um, UFOs and UAPs. So that's why <laughs> that's that's uh, it. It challenged my training, my graduate training. Right. So um, now, Carlos, I'm going to have you um, sketch out your other favorite example, I think, and that would be Maria de Agreda. Uh, she was both a, uh, a levitator. Uh, and a bilocator, but um, you tell the story. Well, uh, Maria de Agueda uh, began having mystical ecstasies very early in life. She was a nun who literally never left her house because it, when she was 15, her parents uh, tur turned her house uh, into a convent. So without ever leaving her house in Agreda, which is in a remote corner of Spain, she reportedly visited the Humano peoples in present-day New Mexico and West Texas over 500 times as a missionary and uh, communicated with them and taught them about the Christian religion and actually, uh, you know, finding out that this was happening what, uh, took a long time, but the the key to it, the, the key that made uh, everyone link Agreda and the Humano people was the fact that the Humanos kept coming to the Franciscan mission nearest to them, which was not all that close, and begging the Franciscan missionaries to baptize them. And when they asked, well, why should we baptize you? You don't know about our religion. And they said, no, no, this lady in blue has been telling us about it. And to this day, the, the lady in blue legend is still part of um, Southwestern American folklore. As a matter of fact, city of San Angelo, Texas, just erected a very large statue of Maria de Agreda uh, 
two years ago, I think. Yeah, and uh, so the, in the area of odd coincidences, weird facts, um, uh, Diana, you actually visited the Vatican archives in pursuit of some information, I think I have this right, about why Joseph was beatified and Maria wasn't. We didn't know this before we scheduled the two of you on the, on the same show together. Uh-huh. Yes, actually, it is kind of strange. And another thing is that um, Joseph of Copertino is also the patron saint of astronauts, by the way. Mm. Um, so, Carla, uh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Carla. Uh, and anyone who flies. Yeah, anyone who flies. <laughs> and, also, and also anyone who takes exams. He's the patron saint of exam takers. And by the way, I, uh, I learned a new word. E- ethrobats, is that how I would pronounce it? It's a- yes, a- yeah, that's a, that's a word that um, spirit, 19th century spiritualists and theosophists uh, preferred to use and, and then fell out of use. Yeah. Uh, and trying it, to revive it. <laughs> yeah, it literally refers to walking on air. Back to that song, yes. that song we played a little yeah. while ago. But um, So, Carlos, let me try a functionalism argument on, out on you. So the, the period you're covering is kind of coterminous with uh, the onset of the Enlightenment, uh, the, the triumph, so, so to speak, uh, of certain uh, more rationalist uh, interpretations of reality as opposed to supernatural ones. And I have this long-standing cultural theory that um, any kind of cultural phenomenon or trend revs up into high gear when it's facing extermination. And so a possible functionalist argument against you know, ex- accepting these accounts would be people sensed a vanishing frontier. They sensed the, you know, there was the triumph of the therapeutic was what Philip Reeve eventually call, called it. But they sensed that this part of their lives was jeopardized by new trends in society. So they they had maybe a, an unconscious incentive to, to believe even more passionately in miracles. So push back against that. Well, there is no pushing back against that. I think it's a very uh, reasonable argument, and I, I make it myself in the book, mm-hmm. that in fact, uh, you know, why is the, why are the 16th and 17th century the peak period for flying people? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you've got two things going on. You've got, as you mentioned, uh, growing rationalism and skepticism, but you also have the Protestant Reformation, and Protestants had denied the possibility of any such miracles. But it gets a little more complicated because while Protestants uh, denied that God performed any such miracles, they really believed that the devil did. And this is also the age of witchcraft persecutions. So these these two things go together, the levitating and bilocating saints and the witches and the persecution of witches. And it is a pushback. And, and, and but but that uh, against rationalism, and uh, as you might say, a vanishing horizon. But that doesn't explain the fact that these phenomena uh, have been recorded uh, for centuries before and after. So there might be a certain intensity to this time period that I'm focusing on, but that intensity uh, is the anomaly, the intensity, not the phenomenon itself. The phenomenon didn't just begin to appear in the 16th century. It was there before, and it was there after, up to the present day. 
So, Carlos, we're running out of time here, but um, 65% of Americans in a Pew report in uh, June 2021, 65% of Americans say they, their best guess is that intelligent life exists on other planets. And so, if I were one of um, Diana's uh, people who've had encounters, uh, or at least somebody who you know said he'd seen a UFO, I'd probably have an easier time convincing people or not being judged a nutcase than yeah. if I made a report of levitation or, or certainly by location. So I don't know. You've only got about 90 seconds to explain why that would be the case, but I'd love to hear it. Well, I've had people say I'm doing the history of the ridiculous or the history of the silly. Yeah, of course they're going to say that. All I'm saying is if you want to be truly skeptical, you should be skeptical of dogmatic materialism. You should be skeptical about anyone who claims that there's only one dimension and this is it. Because, damn it, no, that can't be true. And there are many things that uh, were once impossible or miracles, like an iPhone, and then later we discover that's not the case. But is there anything beyond material existence? That's where we come to the near-death experiences, too, which I think are uh, uh, sort of the next step, the, the UAPs, next step. I think you're absolutely right. Near-death experiences. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm giving a lecture on that today for my oh, class. Oh, I want to go to it. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'll be on campus in the spring semester. I'm going to get to uh, something. Uh, all right. We have to stop there. We're so fortunate to have with us today Diana Walsh-Pasulka, uh, professor of religion at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Her new book is Encounters, Experiences with Non-Human Intelligences. Carlos Ayer, professor of history and religious studies at Yale University. His new book is They Flew, A History of the Impossible. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow is to astronauts and more to come after that. Oh, no. Come on, dance with me. I'm levitating.